Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Birth Lounge Podcast. Gosh, I'm so excited for today's episode because it is so, so, so good. Now, when it comes to fear in childbirth, one of the most common things I hear people asking about is tearing that the JJ. Everybody wants to know, how do I avoid tearing? How do I reduce tearing? How do I save my vagina? RIP the vagina. How do I avoid that? Well, there are a lot of tips and tricks and in the birth lounge I tell you all of them and I even have um, classes on them. I have a a free master class on how you can avoid a c-section and reduce tearing but what about episiotomies? What about the intentional cutting of the space between the vaginal opening and the rectum? That's called your perineum and you know Episiotomies are not recommended by ACOG, and we would hope that they don't happen often, but the unfortunate truth is they do happen much more than they probably should in the U.S. Now, I don't want to scare you. They don't happen all the time. Not a lot of people are subjected to them, but in my time as being a doula, I have heard numerous stories of people being cut, being given an episiotomy. I always find it so fascinating because it's not recommended by ACOG, because we know that naturally tearing the tissue in your vagina is much better for your body than an artificial cut, right? When your body tears naturally, the tissues can heal back naturally. You can think about it as kind of jagged. And so when we put that skin back together with sutures, the the skin can almost hold on or grab on to each other and, and heal back. But when we cut it, it is a smooth cut. There's no jaggedness. There's nothing for that tissue to latch onto on the other side of that cut. It's smooth. And so we find that episiotomies, not only do they not heal well, but they usually have lasting impacts. 
bad impacts, impacts that are unwanted. We don't find that same thing with natural tears. So per usual, I was very, very curious and I wanted to seek out an OBGYN to come on and talk about episiotomies. Why do they happen? What would be a case where it would be appropriate? What do we need to know about the healing? How do we advocate to not have an episiotomy if it's not needed? How do you as the patient discern that if your doctor, your provider is saying, oh, I need to cut you, and you're like, wait a minute, I know this is not needed in many cases at all. It's very, 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 very rare that an episiotomy is actually needed. So that's why I am so excited to have on Dr. K, an OBGYN who serves women with advanced pregnancy needs. You may know this as maternal fetal medicine or high-risk obstetrics or perinatology, but Dr. K, let me tell you, she is one of a kind. Now, you know that on this podcast, I try and elevate the voices of obstetricians who get it. And when I say Dr. K gets it. I mean, boy, she gets it. Dr. K has a special interest in risk prevention and reduction for pregnant mothers. She really is a champion for helping patients understand their rights, understand how to navigate the hospital system, and helping them communicate their goals with their medical team so that everyone can feel safe in the care and that her patients can feel heard and have the births that they deserve. It is truly a great honor to share this space with Dr. K and to be able to have some of her time to share her wisdom, not only with me, but with you. I love being able to share doctors that will help you have a better birth. And Dr. K is just the gal to do it. So without further ado, Dr. K, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I'm excited for today's topic. Now, today's topic is not a joyful one, I don't think. And it is one that is, you know, typically surrounded with fear. But I have no doubt at all that you and I are going to be able to talk about this conversation and empower people. I I want people to be educated that A, episiotomies do exist. B, they do have a place in labor. And C, What can you do if you find yourself in a situation that you may need an episiotomy? How do you have that conversation with your provider? And I was sharing with you before we started recording that you are an OB who gets it. So I'm really excited to hear from the perspective of that kind and collaborative provider that we all hope that we have at our labor. I'm really excited to hear it from your perspective. So I think before we get started, can we just maybe define what an episiotomy is and how often you see them being used? Sure. So an episiotomy, the intention is a cut in the area near the outer part of our reproductive parts, our vulva. It's in the muscle part called the perineum, which is that space between where the vagina opening ends and where the anal opening begins. So that in-between area of skin underneath it is some level of muscle. And that 
is kind of this bridge between those two openings. And the intention of an episiotomy is to widen the space, the functional space of the vagina. So it is meant to kind of extend the width of the vagina by cutting into that nearby land bridge between the vulva or the vagina and the, the anal area. And it used to be used a lot more commonly. From what I can see, it started uh, to come into use around the 1700s by male surgeons, you know, involved in gynecology. At at some point in time, it was thought to be a protective method, maybe to prevent spontaneous lacerations that may be more involved or more complicated, or also to be used if additional space is needed. And, and I think our conversation will talk more about the current modern role for it, you know, in, in comparison to maybe a generation or two generations ago, what it was being used for in previous times, and then its current role in modern, you know, childbirth. And now we don't really see them that often, right? For the, for the most part, people can go in and expect to have their baby and not expect to have an episiotomy, except in pretty rare cases. So, you know, obstetrics has changed over time. And in the United States, it has, uh, in its genesis, you know, obstetrics, different from midwifery, was pretty much a white male, you know, white collar job and and something that could allow you to become a professional, Um, maybe different than the the concept of lords, you know, and serfs and, and common folk in, in, the British Isles, but it was an opportunity to become a professional and it was pretty much being done by white men for, you know, for decades before women in the 20th, 21st century really started getting into the field. And so things have changed over the course of obstetrics in the United States. And there was a period of time where there was a lot of hands-on and there was a lot of doing things almost like a conveyor belt, like everybody had it done, you know, almost like a prescription. This is what we do in childbirth. And so I think there was a previous generation where there was also a lot of uh, use of forceps. There was a lot of use of twilight or a medication that kind of made people very sleepy and, you know, their pushing efforts may not have been very effective and, you know, heavy use of epidurals, which still continues today. And so there was this kind of I think there was overlap with instrumented help in that part of labor where you're at the stage where you're pushing, but the baby's head hasn't come out some, a lot of hands-on and instrumentation in that process. And I know my elder brother, he was a forceps assisted delivery. um, And my mom was like, she refused to push supposedly. And, you know, she may have, it was her first baby. And she was like, I just felt like it was this big turd coming out and I didn't want to push. And so my brother came out with forceps assistance. There was a lot of, okay, we're doing all of this manipulation and we're cutting an episiotomy. And I think it's relevant to say that a forceps is like these big salad bowl spoons, like where you're going to toss this big salad and you have to fit that in the vagina on either side of the baby's head. So you do need more space to get that in. And it depends on that person, how flexible they are in terms of their vagina at that point in time, whether you can fit that in without creating extra room or whether you need to create extra room. So I think there was a, a generation it, you know, from kind of 
men being involved in obstetrics where there was a lot of hands-on, a lot of doing things, a lot of prescribing. This is what, you know, this is the safest way to do childbirth. It came with a lot of intervention at even at that stage of childbirth, like in those last few moments before the baby was born. I think episiotomy was a part of that generation where it was commonly done. It was thought to, you know, okay, well, if we cut, well, we're first, we're going to maybe assume that most women are going to tear in a significant way. Well, maybe if we cut it, then it will be easier to repair. These are some concepts that are out there because it will be a defined cut rather than a haphazard cut. And and I will say that a defined cut from a surgical repair standpoint can be easier because the lines might be clean. They might be, I don't want to say clean, but they might be straight, simple lines rather than irregular ways that, you know, it's almost like the difference if there's an earthquake, there might be jagged divisions in the ground versus if somebody takes, you know, a saw and cuts a straight line. If you want to fill in that crack, it might be easier to fill in a straight line and really do a solid repair than a haphazard, irregular kind of opening. From the surgeon's perspective, it is easier to repair something that you intentionally cut. You put the layers, you you know, you can see them, you pull them together easier. Even maybe a seamstress could appreciate mm. easier to repair something with a defined cut than maybe something that tore in an irregular way, trying to put it back together in a way that looks aesthetic and that may be functional might be more challenging for that repairing person, the surgeon. Now that might be different than the experience of the healing from the person who's had that opening or had that cut or that laceration, but from the, from the repairer's standpoint, it is easier to fix. And so you know, there's a lot of pessimism sometimes that goes into childbirth or, you know, mater- paternity based <laughs> maternity care. And there's a lot of, okay, well, this is going to happen. So let me do something to intervene. She's going to tear. It's going to be easier if I just cut it. I'm, I'm just going to assume she's going to tear, so I'm going to cut it. And so there was a, a phase where everybody got an episiotomy and it was maybe thought to be preventative of something that worse that would have happened spontaneously, assuming that everybody was going to tear in a dramatic way. So that was a previous generation. And as with many things, old concepts don't die up quickly. <laughs> and so, so and sometimes it's hard to teach new tricks. It, it, not everybody's willing to teach a new trick, depending on how long they've been doing the old trick. And so there's going to be changes in concepts and what maybe newer providers are being taught and what they're willing to embrace, maybe compared to somebody that's been in practice for some time who still feels loyalty to their original original ideas or may have some skepticism about some of these newer ideas or maybe is not really exposing themselves to these newer ideas. They're just kind of entrenched in their previous teaching. There was a previous generation where I think that was hand in hand with what we call operative deliveries or forceps, especially forceps. You you sometimes will feel like you need more room to, to apply forceps and not so much with a vacuum because that doesn't really go in the vagina. It just goes on the, the head that's crowning. And also with, you know, maybe thinking that this was going to be the lesser of evils. Now that we are doing a lot more kind of study of what we've done, looking back in obstetrics, we do a lot more study and a lot more evaluation as much as we can do that safely. 
And so then the current perspective is, well, this doesn't really seem to be as helpful as people thought it was. Well, it may not be protective. <laughs> it may not, one, not everybody's going to have a significant laceration on their own. Most people are, I think now we, we recognize that when we pay attention and we don't do anything, okay, most people are going to have minor openings in the in the general vaginal vulvar area, things that may or may not even need to be repaired. They might be superficial or very minimal in their degree of, of lacerations. Now we're looking back at practices and we're seeing, oh, when people have these episiotomies, well, it doesn't prevent pelvic floor dysfunction. It doesn't prevent, you know, prolapse or, you know, loosening of the vagina and the and the vulva where things feel like they're falling out when you get to your your you know postmenopausal years and it doesn't necessarily prevent worse lacerations in fact it, in some of the ways that episiotomies are cut may make the likelihood of an even bigger tear after your cut more mm. more common so we, you know this are called like extension so when you cut an episiotomy you cut an intentional cut but if it rips further, that's an extension and <laughs> an unintentional elongation of, of what you did cut. And so what we've seen when we look backwards at past practices is that, oh, well, there's different ways to cut episiotomy. But some of the ways that we that might be more common in the United States actually had higher rates of going further than they needed to go or whether or not you know, that, that's also a little bit debated because how, how involved your episiotomy was intentionally has differed over time. So they can be involved with going past just that in-between land bridge, what we call the perineum, into the muscle that circles the anus, which helps control holding in gas that we call farts, <laughs> liquid, <laughs> liquid poop and, and solid poops. <laughs> so we need that muscle to know when very to important <laughs> when to release and when to keep it together. We need we need that it's called a sphincter, the anal sphincter is that muscle. And it's supposed to have a certain amount of tone. You know, it's supposed to have a certain amount of holding it all in and then on intentionally letting out different things at certain times. And so because that land bridge, the perineum is is short. It's very easy to now be in the in the region of the anus, the muscle of the anus, and to have these cuts become more complicated and to have potentially have lasting impact on on that particular birthing person, that woman and her body and her experience subsequently. In a previous generation, it was not unusual to cut all the way into the muscle of the anus, and that was an intentional cut. Right. Mm. Um, and then and then in later generations, it was not in they did intentionally cut all the way through. So there was a generation that they wouldn't have considered it an extension. It was they intentionally cut all the way through and then they repaired it all the way. And they got very good at repairing all the different layers involved in that cut. And but in our most recent generation before this one. We didn't intentionally cut through all of those layers into the muscle surrounding the anus. And so then if the anus muscle got involved or the or if it even went through into the anus itself, not just the muscle around it, then we consider that going further than intended. But so there have been some different generations that, you know, how deep the cut was, was also a generational practice. 
Okay. Do you think, do you think any, any part of that was kind of experimental? You saying like they learned the different layers. <laughs> was there a little piece of this that was like, we kind of need to see what's in there to see how we handle it? All of medicine is experimental. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, all, all of it is study and on the go training and hindsight is always twenty twenty. We, can, we yeah. can always look back after we've done something for a while and say, mm, probably, maybe we should stop doing that. <laughs> but, but, but I think that there's a lot different about clinical uh, medicine than like the chemical sciences and the physical sciences. There's a lot, uh, our bodies are not machines mm -hmm. and there's so much individual nuance. There's, there's a general rubric, but it plays out a little bit differently in individual bodies. And so there's a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of thought that sometimes goes into things and then then you try it out for a season and then you look back on it and you're like yeah we thought that was going to work but maybe that doesn't seem to be the approach that's getting the desired goal and so you know when people do research especially if they do research on like in a lab or with even with animal studies where they might have used mice or something to achieve one small question, <laughs> to answer one one very finite, concrete question can take years of study, multiple rounds of changing the technique and the and the and then re-examining your experiment to get one very specified question answered. This but clinical medicine does not does not work that way. <laughs> clinical medicine is in current times based on all kinds of study, but but there's an another reality where a lot of it is um, phases of interventions that then get reevaluated that are based on concepts. They're based on ideas. They're based on okay, we tried this in animals. Now we're going to try it in people, mm -hmm. or we we've tested that we've we've evaluated this concept in study, but then we have to apply it. And, and and during its application phase, it is experimentation. And then you look back on it and you say, okay, how do people do with that? Was it an improvement from what we've been doing or the worse? Okay, well, maybe we should stop doing this if it's worse, if it's better, well, clearly we're onto something. <laughs> it's, it's not math. Math is a lot, um, it's, it's, it's math is, probably more pure yeah it's like black and medicine. white it is what it is the, <laughs> yeah. the math will always math but birth doesn't always work like that okay so before we move on back into the episiotomy realm I'd like to touch briefly and I know this could be a whole episode on its own but <laughs> on oasis so obstetrical I think that the last s could even just be injuries plural but oh, okay. it, it could be the syndrome that, that's fine Got it. I, I couldn't remember the exact thing. So I know a little bit about Oasis, but walk us through briefly kind of what they are. Does it mean a fourth degree tear? Does it mean a little bit past a fourth degree tear? And then is the answer always surgery? Do you always need surgical things? I only asked this because it sounded like 
at one point in time throughout the evolution of episiotomies, we were intentionally causing oasis. And so it made me wonder just about that. Yeah, yeah. So we were intentionally, so I would simplify oasis as an anal sphincter injury, which essentially means that we've now disrupted or cut completely through or severed through part of the muscle around the anus that helps keep our continence, help us keep our farts and our poops in. And so if it's unintentional, it's a third or fourth degree laceration. But remember, I said earlier, there's a previous generation where they did cut intentionally all the way through. And so they would have been contributing to intentional anal injury, assuming that it was just easy to do it preemptively to prevent spontaneous involvement and and just do a planned uh, demolition and a planned repair. And so there was a generation that cut from the vagina all the way to the anus in a very intentional cut. <laughs> and and so there are a generation of, of people that have experienced that, that where it was a routine planned cut. And from the repair standpoint, it may have been, after a while, it may have been very straightforward how to approach that repair because you know that all your layers are involved. Then you have a standard approach to put all that back together versus when you have an unintentional laceration, sometimes you have to do a lot of evaluation to make sure you can correctly assess what layers have been involved and to make sure you're not missing layers that are involved that need to be repaired. So generally, once you get down to the muscle surrounding the anal sphincter, whether it's partially disrupted or completely disrupted on the part that's next to the vagina, because it goes around the anus. Mm -hmm. So it'd just be what we call the anterior component that's most likely to be disrupted. Because once you get past the, that first part, then you're in the anus. And then then you'd have the underside. Well, we're not going to cut all the way past that. So sometimes when people don't put everything back together, you could get complications like fistula from some areas of unintended openings that were never repaired. And then they could create fistulas, which are essentially these unusual connections between different parts of the body that almost create like a channel, like a straw that is allowing communication between one area and the next. And you don't want communication between the vagina and your anus. <laughs> because, I mean, they're both bacteria full, but they've got different types of bacteria. And mm. so, so one potential link between some of these involvements of lacerations is un unrecognized injury that doesn't get repaired that can then contribute to consequences long term. So they knew in the pre there was a generation that was intentionally cutting from the vagina to the anus. And then they knew all those layers were involved. And then they had a systematic approach to then put all those layers back together because they knew they were all involved. Versus if, if you have an unintentional laceration, you do a lot of evaluation to really start checking, okay, what areas are involved in this? It takes a, you know, a little bit of time to look at it, really thoroughly examine it, make sure that you have a good sense of where it ends. And then you start to do this repair. And if it's a spontaneous one, it might have nonlinear you know, some curves and jagged edges, and you got to put that back together as best as possible um, without overdoing it. So 
anything that involves the anal sphincter muscle, especially on the on the side that's closest to the vagina, would be involved in, in oasis or these obstetric-based anal sphincter injuries. And so those can be intentional cuts. They can be extensions from an intentional cut. I think in current times when people are trying to avoid a, a, a sphincter injury because what we've seen later on when we look back is that, okay, well, maybe it created more space, but then now you have ladies, you know, in their later years complaining that they're, they're leaking poop when they cough or when they laugh. And that's really bothersome, right? That's not yeah. that people are going to be quiet about. They're going to complain, hey, you cut me. And now when I cough, I poop, you know, and how embarrassing is that? And, and, you know, and, and I have to change myself all the time. And I'm really, unco- I'm very self-conscious. And when I have sex, you know, maybe I dribble a little bit and it makes me, you know, it, it, it like contributes to all these things that I'm, I'm not pleased that you did, that you contributed to this. And so when we look back, we see that if the injury, whether it was a spontaneous laceration or an episiotomy, if it involved the anal sphincter, there was an increased potential for later on to have incontinence, fecal incontinence, so essentially you leak poop unintentionally. So then some, t- some episiotomy styles have changed to try and avoid that. So in Europe, they do more of a medial lateral, which is instead of going straight down or, you know, somewhat in the midline, which is what had been done most often in the United States is a midline or a median episiotomy. You just go straight down from the vagina, you know, down into the perineum, that land bridge in between. Well, maybe the Europeans figured it out earlier than we did, and they started going mediolateral. <laughs> and so to avoid the sphincter. Now, there's pros and cons to doing that. You, you're more likely to avoid the sphincter of the anus. So you're less likely to then get into problems with uh, injury to the sphincter and maybe poop incontinence later. But it is bulkier when you go to the side. And so then the downside of that is that the discomfort from that medial lateral could be the consequence of that type of episiotomy, especially in the short term. So, so when we look back, we can say, oh, well, those episiotomies, well, they didn't get into the, the sphincter of the anus, but then in the short term, maybe those, those women had more pain with intercourse for longer. And, and it, it still seems to be in the first few months that they may have had pain longer. It, it doesn't seem to, from some of the information I've seen, it doesn't seem to translate into prolonged past the first few months or into the you know, past the first year that people are still complaining of pain. So maybe it's like a short-term trade-off, you know, and that is generally thought to be the preferred episiotomy cut if you think you're going to need it to prevent a longer term issue of in, of disrupting the anal sphincter, maybe having incontinence related to that with the lesser evil of a short-term increased pain and maybe a delay of return to intercourse for a few months or pain with intercourse for a few months longer than if you'd never had an episiotomy or in general. So was this like 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago? Because I'm just picturing like women walking around, pooping all over the place, flatulence (laughs) all day, every day. Like, are we talking about my mom, my grandma, my great grandma? Like, when did this happen? Yeah. uh, So one, episiotomy, I think was first coming into use, first being like experimented on as far as what I could find available around 1700. And that was in Europe. And so 
you know, what we do in the United States might have a different kind of time period, a slight different time period. Um, and also our population is different, you know, so Europe is more homogeneously European, European versus in the United States, we had a mix of free, but non-voting, non-autonomous white women, and then non-free, non-autonomous black women. So there's been a, a, a different trend and history to obstetrics in the United States as a white male industry compared to obstetrics in Europe. There's some overlap between what we do and maybe they were doing mediolaterals because they listened to the complaints and recognize, oh, we can't do this midline. It's you know creating creating issues versus in the United States, we were doing midline episiotomies for a while. So I would say that our yeah. grandmothers are probably in the routine episiotomy group. If they had vaginal deliveries, they're probably in the they were probably in the routine episiotomy group. And then maybe in our mothers and end, it's not unusual for them to have some level of incontinence, some type of incontinence. But childbirth also is associated with continence, but usually more urinary, more rather than poop. Poop incontinence generally is going to suggest that you had some involvement of your anal sphincter in during your childbirth that was disrupted. Or you had like forceps, which and they and they can go hand in hand. And so, and then our mom's generation was probably still getting episiotomies, depending on if they needed if they had a like a forcep delivery or something like that. Because even in my mom's generation, I think they were still using Twilight, uh, you know, a fair amount where it was very easy to just kind of put women somewhat to sleep and then do everything yourself <laughs> and, and eliminate that component of like interacting, you know, with her and the pushing efforts. Now for my generation, you know, I'm 41. So for my generation, now we're getting into the realm of some of the younger obstetricians are, are recognizing and reading some of the information and are doing, if we need it, episiotomies. So I didn't have an episiotomy in my childbirth. Uh, my OBGYN was, you know, more or less in my generation. You know, we're probably not dramatically different in, in age, you know, not more than like maybe 10 years. So, I mean, we could have people currently at the dinner table <laughs> that have experienced significant differences in the use of episiotomy, depending on, depending on, you know, if your grandma's still coming to dinner <laughs> or your great grandma. Yeah. It makes me excited to see that we are moving forward. Um, but it also is kind of a little icky reminder of how slow things move forward. But nonetheless, I'm glad that we're moving away from that routine episiotomy. And I wonder if the European medical community moved to that bilateral because they saw naturally that's where kind of the body would tear instead of directly up and down. What do you see in terms of like what you see in tearing? And also, isn't it true that tearing naturally can sometimes heal better than an episiotomy? So I'm not sure how it heals. I think most of the time when you tear naturally, you don't tear into your anal sphincter. And so if your tears are going to be limited mostly to the vagina, you know, whether it's a superficial or even what we call a first or second degrees where we get past the superficial layer into some of the underlying muscle, but still within the vagina, most of that is going to heal really well. And people are going to have uh, transient discomfort while it's swollen and healing 
but but long term they're probably not going to have significant bothersome experience from it so i think for the people that are going to potentially be at the greatest opportunity for long term experience where it continues to linger some effect of it are going to be those that it got to the anus in terms of its involvement. And that's going to be more common in the people that had episiotomy, especially a median episiotomy, which is, was what we were doing a lot of in the United States for a period. So, so, you know, there's that, I mean, I think, yeah, it's just not, it's not, it's not as common what we've realized when we look back, it's not as common for people to spontaneously tear all the way into the sphincter. And so many people will have, superficial lacerations, whether in the labia near where the urethra, the opening that allows us to urinate inside the walls of the vagina. So on the, you know, on the kind of the, on the vulva and in the perineum, many people will have very superficial lacerations that, you know, may not even bleed that those don't generally need sutures, you know, that once we're not kind of spread open, you know, with our legs open, trying to deliver a baby and you do our daily life. A lot of times our daily life doesn't have our legs wide open. And, and some of that just doesn't have as much tension on it. It just comes back together on its own. If it's not bleeding, sometimes it doesn't even need to be uh, stitched with anything. And then some of the, you know, first or second degree lacerations that still stay in the vagina, they don't extend down into the area near the sphincter. They also may heal. The vagina is meant to be really flexible. It's got, it's a lot more forgiving if there are lacerations or, or, you know, if it's been really stretched, it, you know, just comes back like an accordion, it relaxes and comes back together. So the, the vagina is very forgiving, can tolerate a lot in terms of transient things that happen that it was like, oh, I'll fix this. <laughs> just give me a couple of weeks. Just let me rest for a little week. I'll get it together. <laughs> if you think about the vagina, she kind of is just this like, self-sufficient thing she's self-cleaning she's self-healing she was designed to expand and accommodate your baby's yeah. like movement so let her do her thing so you had <laughs> mentioned earlier forceps being used can sometimes be a situation that you used to see episiotomies be done is that still true today would something like shoulder dystocia be a reason what are some other things that you know, if we run into X scenario or Y situation, we may need to have a discussion about episiotomy. Sure. So we're definitely in the phase of um, changing, changing thought and changing the mindset about the need and the use for episiotomy. And like you said earlier, change can move slowly and changing ideas is it can move slowly. And so the American <laughs> College has, yeah, right? What well, American College has a bulletin. Let me see. It's not called episiotomy. I just want to remind myself. It's called, so the Amer American College is, uh, of Obstetricians and Gynecologists is an American collective of obstetricians that try to put information out there to make it easier to stay informed on, on topics. So they have a bunch of different things that they write, you know, for those persons that are listening to this are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so it's like this, this group of, of esteemed obstetricians that are regularly studying different topics and going back and reviewing the information that we have about it and then writing about it in a really comprehensive way, but something that's digestible, that, you know, a few pages, not too long for you to read to allow obstetricians, gynecologists, anybody who has access to what they publish to stay current on, okay, this is, this is what we currently 
think is the best information about these topics. And so uh, it's a great launching pad to kind of get a good review of what information's out there. And they put things out there every so often and then they go back and re review past works that they published and see, okay, well, is this still really current? And we think that there are updates to this and then they may update it or they may say, no, this is the best information that we have so far. We're going to reaffirm it. We're going to keep it going. We're not going to change much. So they have a, a bulletin that's called prevention and management of obstetric lacerations at vaginal delivery. So it's not an episiotomy bulletin, but the topic of episiotomy is very heavily discussed in that practice bulletin. And so the reality that I've lived through in my relatively short career. I've been I've been a physician since 2010. So it's still a relatively short career is that I have seen it change. The guidance has changed even in that short amount of time. And there was a period of time when I was training where it was heavily encouraged that if you got into a shoulder dystocia, one of the first things that you should do is cut an episiotomy to assist you in your efforts at relieving the shoulder dystocia. And oftentimes at certain, certain hospitals, they may even have checklists of how you manage the shoulder dystocia. And on there would be a check for, did you cut an episiotomy? So it was considered a, an integral part of managing shoulder dystocia. And I have not ever been very good at or, or had any significant experience with doing forceps. But I wouldn't be surprised if uh, cutting an episiotomy was also an integral step that was just thought to be, you know, step one, step two at placing forceps. And I've seen forceps placed and I have often seen episiotomies cut before placing forceps. And it is a, you know, the technique of applying forceps and creating, getting that extra space before you even apply it, you, you have to do essentially to put your hand in first and then you guide the forceps along your hand. So now you've got both your hand, the baby's head and this uh, metal device that even though it's like a spoon, so it's not very, very wide, but all of that is going in on one side to make sure that you can, not bruise the baby that you're getting or you know getting all the way around essentially to the jaw area with your big spoon and then you have to do that on the other side well in order to fit your hand in somebody's vagina when they're in the stage of childbirth that their baby's head is also in the vagina they had to have significant flexibility you know maybe they are a mom that's had a previous birth and they they might have more laxity to the vagina or sometimes you have to make a cut in order to widen the space of the vagina, right? That was the intention of the episiotomy in the first place, is to widen the functional space of the vagina by cutting that land bridge, the perineum, where it doesn't really widen the vagina, but it essentially is, you know, creating more space in the general region. Now, the American College has looked back at, at all of what we thought were reasons to do it. And now they've taken the perspective it's probably not beneficial to do it on a planned basis. And maybe it doesn't even need to be a part of shoulder dystocia management. Maybe it, maybe it really doesn't have any absolute necessary role. And that's their current position. Wow. Maybe it's not actually necessary for anything. And so now we're in the realm of provider discretion. Now we're in the realm of uh, changing the, the thought process about it and and getting this information out there and saying, okay, well, the American College has looked at this and 
you know, they don't really think there's any situation where it's an absolute, yes, you need to do this. So that's that's the current takeaway point. I want to pause and say that again. The, the current takeaway point for all the moms out there, for any birth workers, you know, uh, young up and coming OBGYNs, anybody listening, the current takeaway point is there does not seem to be a role where it is absolutely recommended. That is the current position that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has taken on this. And now it's, okay, let's get into the realm of, we use it restrictively. And there's a kind of a different categories. It's routine use. We no longer think that routine use of episiotomy mean everybody gets it is, is helpful for anything. We don't see any benefit to that. And we actually see increased potential for harm, increased potential for injury for the mom. And now we're at the level of let's restrict its use. And we're going to say, for the most part, it's not absolutely necessary for shoulder associates. It's not absolutely necessary for operative delivery. Now you need to decide if you think you need that space. Can you get the space naturally or do you need that space? It's not mandatory. It's, it's not always needed in certain situations now. Do you have the room or do you not? And then now it's restrictive is, is the recommendation. So we're at the phase where one, we need obstetricians to know that this is the current impression and the current suggestion. And, and the American College is not the law. They put out suggestions. and But oftentimes those suggestions are heavily backed by people that have had a lot of experience, that they've been looking at studies, they've been looking at information, they're trying to to evaluate the merits of what, what they've seen and see how strongly they can make suggestions about what how to modernize obstetrics and to bring it you know forward and maybe leave some of the things of the past that should no longer have routine role in, in how we currently work as obstetricians. And so we need one for, for people to know this is the current thinking. And so not all new tricks <laughs> get picked up easily. So, so we need we need people to know this is the current thinking that it's not mandatory that that really you need to evaluate do you need the space do you not need the space can you get the space naturally without creating the tear you know do you need to cut in order to get that space and then also they need to know okay they're not going to get criticized in certain situations that previously it was considered this is step one in order mm. to do this intervention if you have a shoulder dystocia, they're not going to get criticized for not cutting an episiotomy if they, you know, relieve it with other maneuvers. Then somebody isn't going to come back and say, well, how long did it take you? You should have cut an episiotomy and get there faster. They need to know they're not going to be, you know, criticized for not doing it. That, that's also an important aspect is the negative impact, the negative feedback from not always the mothers that has the most Im impact on them, but sometimes it's their peers or the, you know, the committees that, and like people that are evaluating them that, okay, well, I think you were supposed to do this and you didn't do that. And, you know, so there's that. And then it, then it comes down to in the moment, trying to do a quick assessment. If you, because a lot of times these are time sensitive. Most of the time when you're in the current uh, day of obstetrics, where we're, many people are no longer doing routine episiotomy as part of their, you know, their plan for every birthing mom. Now you're often doing it for emergency situations if you think you need it. And so, you know, in an emergency situation, you don't, you don't have the luxury of a lot of time to consider something. So there's often a quick assessment that's being made 
to determine, do I have the space? Do I not have the space? Mm-hmm. Does, 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 is the area stretched enough on its own or do I need to artificially create more space? And so I think that's, you know, it's a, it's a multi-pronged challenge to kind of keep moving forward is to change past thinking on it, to have providers feel like, okay, if I embrace this, I'm not going to get in trouble. Somebody's going to like, you know, sue me for, for using an old step uh, saying I should have done X, Y, and Z. Cause that was what it, people said in the past. And, and, and then the feasibility of doing something quickly when I think mm-hmm. so hopefully that kind of addresses, I think the current phase that we're in. Yeah, absolutely. That, that was super helpful. So I guess I do have a question about just kind of what can we as patients expect from our provider? So I hear that there are two types of scenarios. One that we think we need an episiotomy and we maybe have a a time for a conversation with, with our patients. And then one that is very emergent. And we're doing this because we think right now we need to get this baby out. Could you talk, could you tell us the language that you would use in both of these scenarios. So let's start with the non-emergent one. Maybe you've been pushing. You really think that if you could just give this mom a little bit extra space, you could help her be done with labor. What are you, what are you saying to this person? You know, I, I don't think that that's, I don't, I, I feel like that's not what we should do. Um, unless a mom is somehow communicating that that's what she wants. Wow, yeah. Because I think it's a short-term fix with the potential for longer-term impact. And so, totally. you know, I don't think that, I think as a person that believes in restrictive episiotomy, I don't think it's to shortcut your labor in pushing if the baby's doing fine. Mm-hmm. I, think mm-hmm. the, I think the role for it is in the setting of if especially regarding labor efforts and the heart rate pattern for the baby there are periods there are times that we see that that the pushing efforts are not being well tolerated by the baby yeah and that where the heart rate pattern goes down pretty significantly and may linger during those pushing efforts and afterwards, Scary um, stuff. right. And so you you can hear it because at this yeah. point in time, you're in the listening phase. You're not really looking at the heart rate tracing. You're listening to it, and so you you see mom's heart rate. You see mom pushing. Oftentimes during the pushing, you may not be able to hear the heart rate very well. At this point, the baby's generally body's in the pelvis. The head is in the vagina, coming down through the vagina. It's it's sometimes challenging to even track the heart rate really well in that phase anyway, because the chest is now you know, probably coming into the vagina mm-hmm. and our external monitors are not always that good at picking up the heart rate when the baby is descending that low. And so then, you know, the mom pushes, you don't hear the heart rate as well, or you hear that it goes down and then she's, you know, done pushing and is kind of catching her breath, waiting for the next contraction and the heart rate is still down <laughs> and it's still down and it's taken a while. And like, just as the heart rate's coming back up, maybe she's having another contraction and you're like, Ooh, okay. How much of this can this little person that doesn't have as much reserve, it's a little bit more fragile, how much can they tolerate? And, and, and you can hear patterns changing over time for the baby where it might take longer and longer 
for the heart rate to come back up. And so in that situation, depending on how long you've been at it, that's an opportunity to say, you know, I think we're starting to get in the place where maybe it's not an emergency, but I want to prevent an emergency. And I'm hearing the change is taking longer and longer for the heart rate to come back up. If this goes on for a prolonged amount of time, it can depress, it can impact that how well your baby transitions from being inside to outside of the womb. It can potentially create your baby, a situation your baby needs additional help and may need some breathing, you know, could could have some injury from decreased oxygen. And so that could be a non-emergent role where you say, I'm I'm seeing this pattern and I think your baby would benefit from shortening the last few minutes of this labor. Mm -hmm. And what I appreciate in this situation, which I think needs to go hand in hand with that, is that your perineum is really tight. And I think that's why you you haven't yet delivered your baby. It's not, it's, it's the, it's this barrier that's holding things in. And I think if your perineum was opened up a little bit that you would have your baby quicker. And then we wouldn't have this prolonged situation of these, you know, longer and longer periods of times with, you know, slower heart rate, slower recovery from not getting as much oxygen during delivery. And I think it's important to also add context to this. All muscle, when we contract that muscle, we cut off oxygen during a contraction. And then when we relax that muscle, then oxygen flows. And so the oxygen is coming to the baby through the placenta that's connected to the womb. And so when moms have contractions, these extremely strong muscle contractions, they cut off oxygen supply to the placenta during that period of time. And then when they relax, then the blood flows again, and then that's going to allow for continuing circulation of oxygen. And so there are a lot of different factors involved, and some babies are going to tolerate that on again, off again process better than others. Some babies may have some situations that are been going on in the womb that make them more sensitive to that part of labor and that they're not going to tolerate that for as long as maybe another baby. So I think that that's a scenario where you're noticing that the heart rate pattern is staying down for an extended period after contractions over by the time mom's ready for the next contraction, the heart rate's barely coming back up and then you're going to do it again. <laughs> you know, and that, that can be challenging uh, yeah. for holding its breath or not getting oxygen repeatedly frequently and you think the perineum is tight and and it is the last barrier to prevent expeditious delivery or you're in a shoulder dystocia and you can't fit your hand in most of the maneuvers for a shoulder dystocia are going to require that a provider put their hand in to then disimpact the shoulder from the maternal pelvic bones and if you can't fit your hand in because there's not enough room between the vagina and the baby for you to put your provider hand in, that's another opportunity to widen the space, which is what the episiotomy is supposed to do. Same thing if now you are at the stage where the baby's coming down, maybe the heart rate pattern is changing in, and or your mom is exhausted. She feels like she can't push. Doctor, please help me. I just can't do this anymore. The heart rate's not good. Then a skilled provider who has forceps may say, okay. I know how to do my forceps, whip them out. And now do I have enough room to apply this tool? I have to use my hand first in order to apply it safely to make sure I get past the ear, you know, that that, that it's not in this area, that I, that I can make sure that it's coming around, the spoon is coming around here and here. 
so I can help to get this kid out. And so if you don't have enough room, okay, how do I get more room? That's it. That's the realm of the episiotomy. But I definitely think that unless a mom is really asking for a doctor, I just can't push anymore. I know my baby's fine. Let's just hurry this thing up. I don't feel like we should offer that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's unfair to a mom, I think, in the the delirium and the exhaustion and the emotional state of labor to say, you want me to just quicken this for you? And, and mm-hmm. <laughs> unless you're also going to say, and by the way, you know, depending on how this works out, it could be more uncomfortable in terms of your recovery for a few more months than it would be if I just left it alone or, you know, if it extends and involves your anal sphincter you could have need for long-term physical therapy. You could have incontinence. Like if you're going to go through all of that, okay, sure. (laughs) But, but it it shouldn't just be, let me shorten this up without explaining that almost any intervention we do in medicine comes with a potential inadvertent risk Mm -hmm. where there's there's some potential, there's a trade-off for some potential benefit. There is the exposure of additional, some new risk that may or may not have been there before. Absolutely. Okay. And if it was an emergent situation and you didn't have time for this conversation, what does that look like? Yeah. So you always have time for some version of a conversation, in my opinion. And I think that's what I put in, uh, in the comments. I could just hug you. I mean, I just love it. <laughs> you always have time. It doesn't have to be a lot of words. It doesn't have to be a lot of times. It could be something like, you know, if, uh, you by this point, you should already know what you're calling that person. Susie. I'm very concerned that the heart rate is going down over and over again. I don't think your baby's tolerating this well. I think the only thing that's standing in the way of you having your baby is your perineum. And I and I think if I cut this, we will avoid making things more dangerous for your baby based on the pattern that I'm seeing. Do you mind if I cut an episiotomy? Okay. Or it's I've seen some providers, you know, I can I see that you're exhausted and your baby's heart rate is down. Do you mind if I help you? I can put I can put forceps on or, you know, I can put something on to help you with your pushing and we can help you bring your baby out earlier because I see the heart rate's down and I, and I also see that you look exhausted. Do you want that additional help? Right. So I so I it could it doesn't have to be a lot of words to explain, you know, what it is at that point in time. But I do think it's important to say, can I move forward with this? Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me quickly present the scenario to you. And you tell me, can I make a cut? Can I apply this tool? This is why I think you would, that you're, you or your baby would benefit. And most of the time, this is for the baby's benefit. It's usually not for the maternal benefit. I think I, I have concerns about what I'm seeing. Or, you know, I'm having a hard time getting your baby out. And I don't have enough space to do the things that, that I think need to be done. Do you mind if I make this cut? To It's going to help me do what I need to do in order to safely try and get your baby out. And and we need we need something to happen right now because I'm concerned that, that we're in an emergency. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take a lot. You know, that's, you know, a couple seconds. And yeah, yeah seconds matter, but it, it doesn't take, it's not going to belabor the process so dramatically that it's not worth it. And so I think that's a really important style practice takeaway that I'd like to communicate to any provider that's listening is very important to get buy-in at what you want to do. And if they say no, okay, then, then you got to deal with that. No, you know, and, and do the best that you can do. 
you know, yeah. and it and it could end up being maybe there's a spontaneous tear, and that you know maybe they're going to be okay with that, right? So, but I do think there's always, I and I and I think that people appreciate that when I've been in, you know, really bad cases. I remember I was in a horrible shoulder dystocia, not no, it was not, it wasn't a shoulder dystocia. I was in a horrible uterine rupture case, and there was a period of time where. The husband was like, what is going on? And I stopped what I was doing. I was working with a trainee. I stopped what I was doing and walked around to the side of the bed. I said, let me tell you what's going on. Because you you can't you can't pretend that these aren't human beings involved in this. And it's really important to say, okay, this is what's going on. You know, it's 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 really complicated situation. This is what we're doing. This is, you know, your baby's going to need additional attention. The baby's got a whole team. We're going to be down here for a while with your wife. And this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'll come talk to you again when we're all, when we're finished. But I want you to yeah. know what's going on right now. Because I can tell right now that you're like, my world just got blown up. Like, I don't, <laughs> what is, what is happening to all the people that I love? So I think it's important for us to remember that we are clinical medicine involves other human beings that we are human beings they are human beings and that if we were in their shoes we wouldn't want a lot of things just done to us without anybody trying to at least give us a, the ability to say yes i'm okay with that or no please do something else like because they have to live with that yeah. that person who has that experience has to live with what comes with that experience and so it's only fair to give them the autonomy to say, okay, I trust you move forward, or please do something else. It's like, this is not at all what I want. And I was trying to think of how do we prevent these situations? And there are a couple of things that I was thinking about in preparation for our podcast that I thought, okay, what, how can I empower a listening mom in this situation? Because we are not the same person. I, I have an inside edge, right? So yeah. I, I understand. <laughs> these things and I'm going to pick a provider based on my knowledge of them and maybe I've worked with them I've seen them I've heard rumors I'm gonna have you know insider access to different styles and and maybe be a little bit easier for me to say okay this is the kind of provider that I would align myself with as an OBGYN picking another provider to be my birth attendant, my skilled provider. And so I thought, okay, well, how do we empower moms that are not on the inside of birth work inside maternity care to, for their own ability to, to speak for themselves and express their, what they want. And so one, there is this concept called perineal massage. And, and so this is something you can do. Your partner can help you with, they can do it on your behalf. If you want them to, to start to try and stretch your perineum even before you get into labor. And actually some investigation of this has shown that there are less tears if you do this on your own. So this is something that you can say, okay, let me discover my perineum (laughs) and let me start to try to see if I can stretch that area ahead of time. I can take matters into my hands and then maybe I won't even need an episiotomy because it maybe it won't be tight in labor or, you know, it'll stretch, you know, it'll give, give a little bit more easily. And so and the concept generally, from what I've seen, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's more than one way to do it, is that you create this stretching where you just reach up just a little bit with thumbs and you're going to kind of 
press downward on the vagina towards your anus so downwards towards your where the poop is and then kind of outward kind of creating a u shape out and down and you just and it's just stretching that area where the perineum is and i'll if i can come across a, like a great you know reference you know or I'll try and send you so that we can include that for the resource of the podcast. And then your partner can do it. If you're like, oh my gosh, I would never touch myself like that. I have friends like that. They're like, oh my gosh, I could never do that. Then you just, you know, if you're okay with your partner touching you, hopefully you and your partner are on good terms at that stage of your pregnancy. <laughs> they have not made you so upset with the baby that you're carrying <laughs> for them and all of what you're going through in pregnancy. Then they can put two thumbs in the vagina and not, it doesn't have to go that far into the vagina. It could even just be, you know, the length of the the tip of your finger to your first knuckle, you know, nails that are short, not nails that are long, and just press and create a U-shape. Press down, out and around, create a U-shape, almost like the U for my alma mater. And so, and do that maybe once a day for a few minutes to just kind of stretch and kind of release any tightness in that muscle part of your, of your perineum and the lower part of the vagina and that can help so that's something you can take into your own hands to decrease uh, your risk of some lacerations or even potentially needing an episiotomy it just helps in labor when should you start that when would somebody want to start perineum massage in pregnancy third trimester is what i've seen and so you know i think probably the last few weeks you know before your term would be a good time to start one recommendation I saw would be after you take a shower or a bath, when you've kind of warmed up, your body might be a little bit more relaxed. That's an opportunity to do it. You can be in a seated way or lying down, whatever is most comfortable for you at that stage. And just, just for a few minutes, you know, once a night is something that I've, that I've seen as an opportunity. In labor, the provider could do, if you're okay with touching, could do warm compresses, over the perineum that also helps to kind of relax and allow for stretching of the perineum and and has been evaluated as a method to kind of cut down the need for episiotomies or significant lacerations and then doing the massage on your own is something you can do yourself then i think another takeaway that i would communicate and i love to engage with you uh here about this as a doula because i am starting to question whether doulas you know, whether we really need doula care to start from the first trimester, mm. especially in picking your provider mm. and whether your birth plan really should start either before you are pregnant or very early on. And then making sure that you are aligning your prenatal care with somebody from the beginning, that you're thinking through pregnancy and childbirth and postpartum from the beginning, and then making sure that you're aligned with a provider. And, and I feel like the doula is like a great person to help you figure out what it is you're trying to experience during your pregnancy and your childbirth, and then helping you navigate with the personalities and, and style practice preferences and people that you know in the community, like who jives with that? Who's going to fit that type of style that you're looking for? And so what I would like to communicate is that really as moms, we should feel comfortable interviewing our provider to see if they're a good fit for us. And it, it does not have to be the first person you go to. <laughs> and at some point, you know, the providers do an interview of their clients. Mm -hmm. They do them to get to know them, to assess the risks of involved, what they're going to need to do. 
But on some levels, it, there needs to be a an interview on both sides where that mom says, okay, I have some questions I need to ask you about what you do and about your style because I'm trying to make sure that uh, I'm picking somebody that's best fit for my team. And so I really want to empower moms to know that that is okay. <laughs> I had a sister-in-law that I was so just like, I loved her confidence. I, I loved her boss attitude at some point. And she went through like three or four prenatal practices before she finally, you know, settled on the, on the nice. group that was, that she thought was best for her. And, you know, we just transfer her records, you know, to, to the next group until she found the right fit. And I think so many moms, you know, either they're in a maternity desert where they don't have a lot of options or they just stick with somebody that they, you know, the first available visit of whoever, you know, they just think, okay, I have to stay with this person. And, and some people know that they don't like that provider. They get weird vibes from that provider. They don't feel comfortable. And then they just stay because they mm. they don't, either they don't know that they can move and take their business elsewhere. And it is your business, right? You're paying for it. Or they think that it's going to be challenging to do, or, you know, there's so many so many things I think that they that might come up as okay I guess I should just stay here even though I don't like this person I may not trust them but you know what else am I going to do so so I do want you to know you can shop around <laughs> and I think correct me if I'm wrong Phoebe, I think that a doula could help in that process of trying to evaluate the providers in your region and starting to think forward about not just my childbirth in the third trimester when I create a birth plan but think about my pregnancy experience you know start to find a provider that would align with the childbirth experience that I think you know I'd really like to have and maybe I'd be most likely to have under their care and then find them early on and get your prenatal care with that provider create a connection or rapport with that provider and so I think it's completely appropriate to ask questions and to take out time in a in a meet and greet and say Okay, I have a few questions to ask you. Do you practice routine episiotomies? What do they say? <laughs> um, now, one, they're probably going to be surprised that you have questions for them, but that's yep. okay. That is okay. It is your it's your experience. It's your life. And if you have a provider that has too much ego to answer questions, that's a flag. Mm. That's a concern. You don't want to be with somebody that gets so flustered and feels like, I don't have to answer questions to you. Well, that's a flag. That's that's already somebody that I wouldn't, you know, want in my childbirth experience. Bingo. So ask them, hey, do you do routine episiotomies? Talk about it up front. Do you, you know, do you do forceps? For me, I think somebody that does forceps is a, a person that has additional skill and sometimes goes hand in hand with some other skills that are almost dying out in obstetrics. Mm. So for me, that's important to somebody that has these skills, whether or not I want them to use it. But if they have them, then that tells me that that provider has additional resources that not all obstetricians and current obstetrics have. So to me, that's like, oh, I can tell something about you. You still have some of these skills that are dying out. Um, but ask them to the questions you know, up front that, that you may want to know. I, I think waiting until the third trimester is not as ideal as evaluating somebody early on to kind of get a sense as to what their provider's style is like and then giving you the confidence that 
that you should continue your prenatal care with that provider or whether you should jump ship early on. Because, you know, some of the things that, that I think bother people start happening early. And some of the language and the coercion and the doubt, the seeds of doubt and fear, sometimes they happen early and, and sometimes uh, they don't need to happen at all. And, and, and it's really based on that provider and their skepticism and their own fear. What they, you know, their ability to predict stuff, which is usually not going to be that great, or ability to predict all kinds of things. It's usually not that great. So that's, if I could empower any mom listening, I would encourage you to uh, connect with the early, start thinking through the experience you want to have during during your pregnancy as well as your childbirth and postpartum. Create uh, a list of questions of these are the type of things that if somebody d- did this to me, I would be upset. I would, I if I knew this about them up front, I would, I wouldn't stay in their care. What are those deal breakers for you? If I knew this was the type of priority you were going to be, I would, I wouldn't give you my business. Okay, so let's put some of these questions together and ask people, and 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 see how they respond. See if they have compassion, if they have grace, if they give you time, if they if you connect with them do you feel like do you feel like you can trust them do they do they you know so i think i think that could be empowering to know you can, you can move your business as long as you're not sure that's extremely limited but unfortunately that is the reality for some people um yeah i agree with everything that you just said and i Definitely agree that doulas can be helpful. So I actually have a list of 10 questions to ask when you're interviewing providers, and I'll link that in the show notes for you guys. But our clients are typically signed up with us by about 12 to 16 weeks pregnant. So our average client is with us for about 12 to 15 months. And I think the outcomes that we see with our clients are drastically different than with traditional doula care. And I think so much of it is because we have so much time with our clients and we actually get to, you know, take advantage of those eight to 10 to 12 minute prenatals. If you don't go in prepared with questions ready to answer them, it can feel like a whirlwind. Your doctor comes in. Hi, how are you? Your weight looks good. Anything bothering you? Okay, great. Let's measure (laughs) your baby. Okay, bye. See you next week. See you in two weeks. See you in a month. And you're like, Uh, what? You know? And so I do, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think a doula can be really beneficial in having that inside insight inside of the hospital insight to who the providers are, what their bedside manner is, what type of patient they are appropriate for. Because just because someone's not the right provider for you doesn't mean they're a bad doctor. It just means you guys didn't drive. So there's a doctor out there for everybody. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything. Okay, I do have three final questions before we wrap up. So one is, would you say that perineum massage is more important for someone who has had a previous episiotomy? And my thinking is there's going to be scar tissue there. So would we want to use that perineum massage to kind of break that up to give that perineum the most elasticity possible during labor? Sure. So I think some of the risk factors or some of the factors that seem to be associated with episiotomy are sometimes larger babies, Asian moms, first time moms. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that if you're in a first time mom, 
you know, that this is the experiment <laughs> that your childbirth is. We never know what's going to happen. So I would say, you know, if you're in any of those categories, people are starting to question whether your baby's a little bit larger than usual. You know, maybe there's going to be a increased potential for shoulder dystocia. If you're an Asian mom, I'm not really sure why Asian moms are in that group. If you are a first time, you know, mom, this is going to be your first time going through childbirth. Then I think that that would really be beneficial. I think if you have had a previous episiotomy or a laceration, that that may also be beneficial to really just encourage elasticity rather than tearing because sometimes the repeat tear rate can be significant if you've previously had either an episiotomy or laceration sometimes it just opens right back up again under tension and so it could be helpful to create more elasticity if you've previously had uh, a laceration to hopefully prevent a significant tear or opening up again. Yeah. Okay. And would, would there be situations where instead of, or before cutting an episiotomy, you might suggest a position change, something that might, you know, open up the pelvis a little bit more and, or give that perineum a little bit more space in a, you know, something other than lithotomy, I guess is what I'm thinking. So for the hospital patient, a large majority of them, overwhelming majority, are going to have epidural during their labor. Oh, okay. You know, I think that's that's a fair one. Most most moms are going to birth in the hospital, and I think the ability to get an epidural is a high set point for yeah. people. That you know, a lot of people are very concerned about how well they would tolerate labor pain, and so so not all positions in an epidural anesthetized patient are going to be really feasible that maybe somebody that was either, you know, doing something else for their pain management, but not having an epidural, they're going to have a lot less restrictions on their Mm -hmm. ability. But if you are on your side, almost kind of like, you know, a fire hydrant, dog fire hydrant pose, if you're on your side with one leg up, that seems to also have a lower risk of significant lacerations. And so this is interesting because this is also involves changing our thought process as OBGYNs in changing different positions, being able to kind of still visualize the architecture of the vagina and the perineum and the pelvis when we do a rotation, still to know kind of where things are with that rotational movement. And I I think a lot of providers, they feel most confident in things that are familiar to them. And so this is a stretch for some people to be comfortable doing deliveries in a position that's not as common. But sometimes these positions are different positions, especially lithotomy is not the best position to open up the pelvis. And so even a a little bit of a rotation onto one side, you know, with the other leg open, you know, almost like, I forget what that exercise was that had the actress with with the, it had like the device. It's like the clam. (laughs) That's what I always think about, like the clam legs. (laughs) You know, and, and I, well, I had an epidural in labor and I was knew that my pushing efforts were not doing anything. And I, my, my provider was so gracious, but also like not giving me the real deal. And I, I, I'm not doing anything. I can feel that I'm not doing it. She's like, oh, no, 
And so I really just uh, wanted to change positions. I was uncomfortable in the position that I was in. And uh, one of the nurses that was part of my labor team said, hey, well, why don't you lie on your side? And it was it was actually recommended to me because I was having breakthrough contraction pain that was very distracting to me. And it was hard to focus my my pushing efforts because of this very focused pain that I just wanted to brace it. And, and so she's, why don't you lie on the side that's bothering you? And so I was on one side and, you know, pulling back on one leg and somebody else was helping me hold that other leg that, you know, to create that leg up in the air, that dog kind of peeing on a fire hydrant concept. And, and I pushed for less than five minutes and had my daughter in that position versus over three hours on my back doing nothing. And so it really, I felt empowered. It helped me manage the the pain. It was just a game changer for me. And so that position is one that has at least been evaluated and found to have less risk of significant tear. So I would encourage that. And I don't know if all the positions have been evaluated well. You know, I think that's probably a, more likely for OBGYNs to have evaluated. But I imagine that midwives who are dealing with with moms that are choosing not to have epidurals are going to say, oh, there's all these positions that you could do to open up that space, to stretch that area. And then, you know, so I think that they have things to contribute as well in our understanding. Okay. This wasn't part of my original three. So now I still have two more, but you had mentioned <laughs> that most people will have uh, epidural. So can we say that an epidural, although it's still very rare, does increase your risk for a need for episiotomy or no? So I'm not sure that I can make that connection, Yeah, uh, but there are impacts from the epidural, especially depending on how an epidural is managed. So an epidural needs to be managed and a savvy labor nurse will manage it. And so things that you <laughs> need you it's very important for the epidural to be managed and unfortunately it's not often being managed by the people who are placing it it's generally not being managed fully by the anesthesia providers maybe because they're you know doing the next one or they're, they're you know they're on the go so it's really a savvy labor nurse who's going to manage the epidural and make suggestions about how to manage it and so the epidural will its intent is to give you some numbing essentially from the belly button area, maybe a little bit higher down through the pelvis. And so for the most part, that's where you're going to experience contractions. That's okay for you to have a a numbing during the majority of your labor. But when you are in a pushing phase, you need to feel connected to your body. You need to be able to actively participate with what your body is trying to do and intensify that pushing effort and and at that phase the epidural may work against you because then it's then you feel disconnected you can't tell how much pressure you're you're generating you may not be able to concentrate that pressure and and say okay I want to contract in my pelvis and near my near my anus or in my I want to put force in my vagina and if you can't feel that anymore then you feel disconnected and so A savvy nurse will say, let's turn the epidural down so you can feel it because you need to, you need to feel rooted to your body in pushing for the most part. And so 
then it's like, okay, there's maybe a little bit of pain that you or awareness of your body that you need to be connected to in order for your pushing efforts to really not be belabored, pun intended. <laughs> and so, so there's some management that should happen with that. It really takes a savvy labor nurse to say, okay, you know, there's some level of pain or discomfort that is helpful mm. in this in, in being able to have that birthing person be connected. So sometimes being completely disconnected is makes your pushing longer than it needs to, less effective. And that could contribute to next steps that could lead to, okay, a longer labor and whether or not your baby tolerates longer pushing efforts. Yeah. It's yeah. not a direct cause of an episiotomy, but you can see how the cascade can cause yes. a compounding factor of, well, the episiotomy epidural caused this and this caused this. And then this, you know, maybe or maybe didn't cause this, but we did run into it and it all compounded into, uh oh, now we think we need an episiotomy. Okay. Yeah. Well, this has been super helpful. And my very last question is if you've already had an episiotomy, what does it mean for future births? Are you guaranteed to have another episiotomy? Should you see how natural tearing works with your body? Do we have data around that? Well, I don't know if if you had an episiotomy once, if that is means that you have to have one again. And I, I think it's going to come down to your provider as well. You know, did you stay with the same provider who cut a, an episiotomy the first time? Did you go to someone else? Have they changed their position on it? Or maybe are the factors different in your second childbirth or your subsequent? Maybe that scenario where they thought they needed an episiotomy in the first pregnancy and childbirth does not completely present itself again. So you may not necessarily have an episiotomy again. You could have a spontaneous opening up or what we call a laceration. Where, where some layers may split under the pressure of the head coming down. So I think I think it's hard to really predict those numbers. I think there are a lot of factors that go into episiotomy rates. But I think maybe trying to take matters into your own hands and do some massage of the perineum could, could cut down on a need for episiotomy. We have some information that that can cut down on rates of episiotomy and or significant lacerations. Nice. And I'm sure that patient preference comes into this, you know, at, at some point. So if you have already had an episiotomy and you have very strong feelings about how your perineum is managed in your next birth, have this conversation with your provider. And like Dr. K said, if you have a provider who's not willing to have this conversation with you or just really feels very strongly in a different direction than you, don't be afraid to change a provider based on this one thing, especially if you had a lot of trouble with your episiotomy last time, or if it's just something you really strongly desired not to have, don't be afraid to you know, chase that care that's going to, to be appropriate for you. Oh my goodness, you did exactly what I thought you would do. And you made a very <laughs> scary topic, not scary at all. And I just feel like, I feel like now people really can understand it is rare. 
but there is a place for it. And how do we come to that decision collaboratively with our provider to keep you and your baby the safest? And and it's not just physical safety, it's emotional safety and yeah. mental safety. And it's the whole experience of keeping you as an entire being safe, right? Wow, this was empowering. I feel just... I feel amazing. I hope our listeners do as well. <laughs> Dr. K, thanks for being here with me today. I did want to leave you guys with one resource. If you don't know about leapfrog.org, it's a great website. Unfortunately, not all hospitals are on there, but the hospitals that did report, they did ask about episiotomy rates. And so for some hospitals, for some facilities, you can actually go and see the episiotomy rates. Another downside is not all hospitals have reported recently. So sometimes you go and their latest data is like from 2016. You're like, well, this is almost 10 years old, you know? So keep that in mind, but there are, you know, some resources, I'll be a little spotty about episiotomy rates in your area. Dr. K, if people were interested in connecting with you or, you know, they wanted to follow you on social media, you do a lot of talking about how to advocate for yourself, how to avoid unnecessary C-sections, how to actually have a really empowered birth experience from the OBGYN's perspective. And obviously I really love that. How can people connect with you? Oh, well, thank you. And I also just want to say thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for those who nominated me to be somebody that would be interviewed to speak and be featured. I, I am humbled. And if anybody wants to follow any of the content that Dr. K underscore pregnancy specialist on a few different social media mediums. I'm on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook for the most part. A little bit on thread. And possibly moving into the YouTube space, you know, very slowly, but definitely Instagram and, and TikTok and Facebook. So I'd love to connect with you. There are ways to connect through the, most of those social media avenues. And I do Q and A's every so often where I take questions and my stories to really try to just answer the questions that are on people's minds. I love that you're hanging out where all the cool kids are. <laughs> all right, you guys, thank you so much for being here with Dr. K and I today. It was so much fun. I know this is a topic where when you first hit play, you were like, oh, shit, what are we going to talk about? And I hope that you're leaving feeling a really informed. I hope you understand what an episiotomy is and why we might need them. And then I hope truly that you feel empowered and confident to have this discussion with your provider. And hopefully, if you don't get the response that you need, you have the confidence and the little nudge from Dr. K and I that it is okay to go out and seek better care because my friend, you are worth it. Go find that care that makes you feel jazzed up. You leave their office and you're like, hell yeah, I cannot wait to have my baby. I trust this person. I feel safe. I know that they care about me and they truly want what is best for me and my baby, regardless of their own beliefs or their own typical common practice. This is collaborative care between you and your provider. And we really want to see that play out. Remember, this is your birth and you are the boss. All right, you guys, we will see you again on Friday because don't forget, we're doing two episodes a week this year in 2020. 
24. Also, if you haven't stopped by to rate the show, it would be really awesome and I would really, really, really appreciate it if you could leave us a review and a five-star rating. If you're not going to leave a five-star rating, go rate someone else's podcast. Don't leave that shit on mine. All right, you guys. Seriously, it's always so much fun to hang out with you. Don't forget that you can find the full video on YouTube. And as always, connect with me on Instagram at Tranquility by Hehe. I will see you later. Bye. Hey, before you go, I wanted to let you know that the doors to the Birth Lounge are officially open. You can join the Birth Lounge at thebirthlounge.com to find the best childbirth education on the internet. It is comprehensive care. There is no agenda. I'm truly stepping you through any birth plan that you want to make, whatever feels good to you, because my goal is not to help you have one type of birth over the other. Instead, I want to help you have a birth free of birth trauma because I know that that sets you up for a lifetime of success. So much birth trauma is avoidable and it can actually be avoided in your labor if you do specific things or if you avoid certain things. I want to teach you what those certain things are. We know that you cannot plan out how your birth is going to go, but you absolutely can be prepared. And that means being prepared for anything that comes your way. So inside the birth lounge, I am going to teach you unmedicated childbirth coping mechanisms, but I'm also going to talk to you about medicinal options. I also want you to understand what normal physiological labor looks like so that you know what's normal, but I also want you to understand what's abnormal. So I'm going to teach you the common complications that sometimes pop up or the roadblocks or pivots that people encounter during the birth process. I also am going to teach your partner everything that they need to know to be helpful during labor. And I mean actually be helpful, not just sit on the couch and say, you're doing a great job, babe. I'm going to teach them pain relief strategies, how to advocate for your goals, how to offer you options, and how to truly take care of you in labor so that, again, you can avoid birth trauma. Join the Birth Lounge at thebirthlounge.com to have an informed labor where you feel confident navigating hospital policy and advocating for your goals. Again, that is thebirthlounge.com. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident.